1: Welcome
0: to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
2: Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. I'm going to start uh, this episode with uh, perhaps what could be a sports trivia question. Uh, Who was the last Australian to take all 10 wickets in an innings in first-class cricket in Australia? Uh, Well, you're about to find out the answer. As he is my next guest on Inspiring Stories, not just a gifted cricketer, he also played waffle football, uh, winning a premiership with Claremont, uh, and then went on to enjoy a long and illustrious career as a coach, as an administrator, an author, and in sports media. Nowadays, you could say uh, he's uh, at the head of a great sporting dynasty here in Australia, and we'll get through his family tree over the course of the next hour or so. Last name is Brayshaw, first name is Ian, affectionately known to many as Sticks. It's my great pleasure to say hello and welcome, Ian Brayshaw.
1: Well, hello and welcome to you too, Tim. Thanks for having us on your program.
2: It's an absolute pleasure. Where does the name Sticks come from?
1: Oh, school days, mate. I had a, a, a really close friendship with a when we were about ten years of age with a guy called Drummond. And yep. I used to call him drumsticks and all of a sudden he was drum and I was stick. <laughs> Simple as that. Fair enough. It that, uh,
2: back at your Scotch College days then?
1: Yes, exactly, yeah.
2: There you go. Um, Ian, firstly, let's let's go to where you are now. You call Albany home these days. What took you to yeah, Albany?
1: We, we, well, we just wanted to retire to a, a, a beautiful sort of seaside place uh, with gorgeous ocean views and we found it at a place called Good Beach. Yep. Uh, overlooking Frenchman Bay and and King George's Sound, and and uh, we we bought a block and, in the late nineties, and then built in the early two thousands, and and love just love it.
2: Yeah, beautiful. Uh, it didn't hold any kind of uh, special significance to you, you know, prior to moving down there and and retiring down there.
1: Well, oddly enough, my father actually lived in Albany. He was brought down here as a young as a sort of a teenager by his family. His father had a job in Albany. And uh, so that that link was there, and uh, my father was a keen cricketer, and yep. he played cricket down here, and and um, yeah, so that there was there was a link, mm. but it wasn't the wasn't the deciding factor. We just went on a tour around the coast, and and uh, just decided this was the best place.
2: Thought, yep, that'll do. Yeah. You, mu- you must uh, have to come up to Perth a bit though, Ian, because you've got some pretty famous Brayshaws now uh, in the clan who are uh, doing pretty good things on sporting fields uh, in the current time, aren't they?
1: Well, they are, and we're very proud of them. Uh, I mean, there's two pretty handy footballers. Yep. Uh, I mean, Hamish, Hamish gave it a go at the Eagles for three years and, and had one game. Thank goodness he got one game. <laughs> and uh, he, he he and uh, his, the oldest of Mark's boys is William, and he's a, he's a captain in the Army. And we're very proud of what he's achieved as well. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then you have Angus and Andrew, the, foot, the two current footballers. So th- there is a bit of a, a dynasty happening there. And, and we we're very proud of the fact that Mark, their father, played AFL football for North Melbourne. And uh, their uncle, Jamie, played uh, a lot of state cricket for WA and South Australia. So the generations have, uh, have built on what I was able to achieve. They've, they've gone way past me.
2: Well, that's debatable, Ian. Let's get let's get into no, some of your own me. sporting prowess, uh, things that you've uh, kind of led us there. Uh, I mentioned at the outset there that you are still the last Australian cricketer uh, at first-class level. I'm sure it's happened many times uh, in the backyards across Australia, <laughs> clean sweeping and in innings. Um, but on a first-class cricket field, you were still the last Australian uh, to have taken a tenfer. Um, you must be incredibly proud, not only of achieving that, but the fact that you are the most recent to do it.
1: Yeah, well, it happened in 1976 or something like that. I don't know. Um, and uh, many years have gone by, but I, I think you know, like I was a medium pace swing bowler. Yep. And uh, I bowled 17 odd overs in that game, spread over two days in in that inning, spread over two days. I, I I think pace bowlers now they they they're all managed. You're not allowed to bowl enough overs to take all 10 wickets. In my <laughs> my opinion, it's, it's likely not not to happen again with a pace bowler. It might be a spinner who does it, but. I don't think Australian wickets favour spinners anyhow. Uh, so I, it, it probably will last for a while. It, look, look, it was just one of those days sort of thing. And and uh, you can't account for the fact that you had Graham McKenzie and Tony Locke, two of the two great test cricketers, uh, bowling at the other end, uh, as it were, and, and, and not taking a wicket. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't remember them having a catch dropped off them and I don't, I don't remember a near run out or anything like that. It, just all, it was almost preordained that somebody that day, it happened to be me, would, would <laughs> take all 10.
2: And I'm loath yeah. to correct you, Ian, but uh, it was actually October of 1967 when this happened. Um, oh, 67. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, 10 for 44. 76
1: was a miracle match.
2: Yes, <laughs> yeah, we'll get that, to that. In a minute. That really
1: was an extraordinary game.
2: Seventeen point six overs uh, it took you to to claim those ten scalps, although they were eight ball overs uh, back in those yes, days. they were against a, yeah. a pretty strong Victorian side, uh, as it was uh, on that day. Bill Laurie, Bob Cowper, Keith Stackpole, among your scalps. Do you remember it pretty vividly? All ten wickets.
1: Look, I don't remember all ten. I, I remember getting Bill out because he, he was Barnacle Bill, he was known as. And <laughs> you know, it, it was like a career achievement to get him out. And, and, uh, and Keith Stackpole, I, I remember um, Stacky was one of those guys who was never out until all three stumps were lying on the ground. You know, he always he was always complaining about bad decisions and all that. And I, and, I, and I remember how extraordinary way that he got out. He played, he played forward to an in-swinger. It landed on his toe. And he put his bat, and he then his bat came forward, and it popped up off his tail, and he popped it up, and it was just a simple catch at mid-off. Jock Irvin took the catch. So look, I remember certain parts. of it. I remember the last wicket. Yeah. Alan Connolly came out, and you know we we'd only made you might have, might know, but we'd made a score of like 176, I think it was, or something like that, which was typical of WA. We were no good in those days, uh, to that point. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and the ninth wicket fell, and they were 160 or thereabouts, uh, needing 15 more runs. And I'm just begging someone else at the other end to take a wicket and, <laughs> so that we can beat the bastards. You know, that was, it was one of those things that, you know, the Victorians were they were the reigning Sheffield Shield holders. And anyhow, our pal came out and uh, he played forward to an outswinger and nicked it. And John and Browdy, my one of my dear friends, yep. dived forward and took a beautiful catch and that was that. So it was. Just, I, I, I remember bits of it, but not a lot of it.
2: Yeah. Do you remember, though, you know, as you got, Six for seven for people going, oh, you know, wow, maybe the clean sweep is on here. Let's give the ball back to sticks for a few more overs. No, did it, did it feel like, all, you know, like you said, it, it almost seemed like it was it was fate that it happened? Did you, were, you, were you searching exactly. for the ball that day?
1: No, no. I mean, I, 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 as I said a few moments ago, I was just hoping someone else would take the 10 well, yeah. so that we could win on the first inning. We went on one outright and went on and won the Shield and, and beating at Melbourne, Victoria outright in Melbourne at the end to, to win it. And uh, so it was a, it was a, a signature game mm. to beat them outright uh, and a signature year you know, yep. to beat them outright again in Melbourne to win the Shield. And that was the first time we'd won the Shield in, in open competition. So it was, it was really was quite a, an extraordinary season. And I don't remember anything of, of, of sort of give me the ball. It was just... I do remember I had two-for-two two at Stumps on the first day. And the coach, Wally Langdon, came up to me in the dressing room and said, good on you, son. He was one of those guys who was very supportive and pat you on the back and like, yep. ruffled your hair or whatever. And he said, I'll tell you what, you've got two-for-two two now. He said, if you end up with five-for-five, five, he said, I'll get Todd Campbell, who was the photographer, the West photographer who's always covered cricket. Yep. He said, I'll get Todd to take a photo of the scoreboard. Well, he, I've got a photo somewhere in here with with my, five for five next to my name. I actually went from two to two to f- two for two to five for five, and then of course the, the whole thing. Sort well, then of a, it blew unreal. out after
2: that, didn't it? For the last five. Yeah, it, it,
1: well, truly, yeah. yeah. What do it's you get for crap, taking um, a
2: what? What do you get for 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 taking a ten for? I mean, you get to keep keep a match ball, don't you? If you if you if you get yeah, five. And, and or, uh, what do you get for ten?
1: Well, I I loaned loaned the ball to the Wacker Museum and they refused to give it back to me. They said, no, no, too much time to pass by. (laughs) No, (laughs) look, what you you get is the joy of of getting Bill Laurie out. And I got him in the second innings as well, which was a great joy. Not many blokes have got him out twice in a game. Yeah. No, look, look, we played for peanuts in those days. And uh, we played for the joy of playing cricket and and for the flag. We used to say we played for the West Australian cricket flag and... uh, and it was it was just um, fun. We you know we were we were absolute amateurs, and even the test players were amateurs almost. You know yep. they were. We just loved playing for Western Australia. And Tony Locke was a good captain, and uh, he was followed by John Inverarity and and Rod Marsh, other captains I played under, and they were they all had wonderful ways about them, and yep. and it was just a joy to. And, I, and I'm sitting in my office here down at Albany. And I'm looking at the photo of the team that won the miracle match, which you might come to mm. later well, on. Let's talk about, about that. that now. Yeah. So I'm just, well, I'm just looking at some of the quality of the players, and yeah. I won't read them all out. But, but you had Kim Hughes, Craig Sargent, Mick Malone, Dennis Lui, Bruce Yardley, Wayne Clark, Rod Marsh. I mean, I, I had the joy of playing with yeah. some fantastic cricketers. You know, I did. I, I was able to be part of it all and and uh, do my little bit here and there. But I mean, we just we just had a a purple run of terrific players from that, that sixty seven game on with all these young players started to come through and and you know we had a we had a long reign of, of mm. supremacy.
2: Yeah, what an absolute privilege it must have been to play alongside those sorts of people. Who are the ones that stand out for you as, as just the most absolutely outstanding players that you were lucky enough to play alongside in?
1: Well I'd say Rod and Dennis Yep. For a start, because they were just absolutely dominant international cricketers, they were at the top of the tree in their craft, and uh, uh, so those and they just loved playing for Western Australia, and they loved playing for their clubs. You know, these days I don't think too many test cricketers play for their clubs. Mm. I know the programs are all different and all, but they were just so dedicated to to their teammates, and 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 we used to have a saying, you know. That if you're as happy for one of your mates to have a good day as you would be if it was you having a good day, he said, then you've got a team. And we're all imbued with that sort of spirit. If Dennis didn't have a good day and I might have had a good day, or Mick Malone did, or whatever, Dennis would be just as happy. As, and and uh, anyhow, I've, I've dealt with those two for obvious reasons. But the other <laughs> yeah. one was Kim Hughes. Yeah. Now Kim Hughes, Kim Hughes was the most one of the most gifted sportsmen I've ever seen. He, he was just the most beautiful batsman. And he had all the shots and all the bombast, if you like, to play them. And he used to be his own worst enemy at times. He'd get himself out and, and uh, when he shouldn't have. But but he was he just never died wondering, Kim. He he was yeah. just a, a beautiful player. So of the play, and, and then John Inverity, I think I, I I have a special place place for him. A terrific cricketer, great great application of, of his skills, but a wonderful wonderful leader. Yeah. He he just uh, he was the most. Um, Oh, you know he, he he was very technical, you know he knew all the weaknesses and strengths of the opposition players and of his own players, and he led but he led from the front he was uh he was just a very bold, brave player uh, with a bat in hand and you no know, so I, I, I look I could name others but i i don't want to i, I think' <laughs> I, I'd only muddy, muddy the water. i mean mm-hmm. Tony Locke was a fantastic influence on all of us, and so was Barry Shepherd in the early days you know they they were sort of great leaders in their own sort of Really tough workmanlike like way, and no, we, we just started to produce good players and, and it was yep. a good club competition and a good, good climate. The mm. Wacker was a great place to play cricket on, and uh, you, know, we, we, you know, we just had a really wonderful period of, of and, and still do. We're mm. still producing good cricketers,
2: yeah, we certainly are. But uh, certainly, you've named some absolute legends there that you were fortunate enough to play alongside. Ian, we need to take a quick break after that, we might uh, discuss Ian Brayshaw. Uh, the premiership-winning footballer as well, because I suppose you were of a a time when you could be uh, competing at the highest level in both sports simultaneously. We'll get into that right after we take a break. Ian Brayshaw is our special guest on Inspiring Stories. Back with more soon. You're listening
0: to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bowra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
2: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Ian Brayshaw is our special guest. Uh, We'll leave his exploits uh, as a a gifted all-rounder in first-class cricket to to one side just for a moment. Uh, Because at the same time, Ian, you were also playing football with Claremont in The Waffle. Uh, I know it was a different time then, and you could do both, but how did you manage both? I mean, I know different times of the year, obviously, but, you know, how did you juggle all those things?
1: Well, I mean, I've had a, we all had a career in you know, working as well. You know? yeah. People like Dennis Billy and Rod Marsh, the cricketers, were damn near full-time cricketers, but they all had, we all had a job. And yeah. so I was de- developing my career as a journalist with the, the West in those, those early days, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, I mean... Football, I, I enjoy. I love footy, and I enjoyed playing it. But it, to me, it was a matter of filling in between cricket seasons. Sure, it kept you, it kept you interested, and uh, gave you something else to do. My wife was, um, you know, came into on on the scene, and and she, we in the end, we just said, look, it's too much. I I, I need to get out of footy and and concentrate on, on cricket and, and, and journalism and being a family man. But mm. look, I, I mean, I, I started out at, at Claremont when, like, like with Western Australia, we were the easy beats. We were bottom of the ladder. And in fact, in 1963, under a coach called Jim, not Jim Conway came along next, uh, Peter Pianto, uh, we won three games out of out of 21. And, and it was a uh, it was typical, typical year for, for Claremont. And... Uh, Then all of a sudden he went, Peter went back to Victoria and they appointed Jim Conway. And it was just like he was waved waved a magic wand over the the whole club from the president down to the bootstutter and all, everybody. It was just an unbelievable transformation. Yeah. And and, uh, we ended up, uh, you know, working our way through. I, I think I was reserve. In those days you had a reserve, 20 players reserve. And you couldn't come on if you came on the field. The other you, there's no interchange. It was just you came on, and some games you didn't come on at all. And I think I was reserving that season '64, ten time, ten or eleven times. And it came to the finals, and we or well, came to what they call the fifth final, where we had to beat West Perth at Leaderville to to actually qualify for the finals, or, or they would have. And there were 30, 22,000 people at the game at Leaderville, if you can, if you can believe that. And, and we ended up. We ended up staggering over the line. I was a reserve in that game. But uh, what happened was we came into the finals and, and I, I was playing on the halfback flank and, and there were three blokes injured and we called them the TPI's, which in those days meant totally and permanently incapacitated. <laughs> and that that was, that was like soldiers coming home from the war. Yeah. These guys were all on crutches and I got a game. There you go. And I played okay. And this one And I just kept on getting a game through the, through to the grand final and and uh, Conway must have had some belief in me. or the TPI's were, were still on their crutches and <laughs> still kept on getting the game. And, and, and for us to come from last the year before with three wins to win that Premiership was extraordinary performance and, and, and a testament to the, the quality of developing players, but also the coach, Jim Conway, and, and his assistant, also a, a Sandover medalist, uh, called Sonny Mafina, who was an old Claremont player. Jim was East from Antle. And uh, it was just... One of those years that you had to pinch yourself and say, "Well, how do we do it?"
2: Yep. Yeah. Uh, how, how does that rate compared to your other triumphs on the sporting field? Winning a premiership with Claremont. How does that stack up against some of the others?
1: It's a, it's a very good question, Tim. Because I mean, I had I had some you know good times at school. Mm. We had some winning teams at school, and and uh, that that was that was a, a joy. Uh, I mean, and, and Claremont. I, I captain Clement Cottesloe to victory in the premiership in 1964-65. So the next summer uh, after the premiership of the cricket, I, I mean having having that joy as well. But I think probably the greatest pleasure at all was the 67-68 Sheffield Shield, where we were, we came again from being the easy beats to, to to beating Victoria twice outright to win the shield and. I think, but, uh, but but playing for Claremont and in the grand final and premiership was was pretty good as well. Yeah. I think the capacity crowd at, at Subiaco there would have been damn near fifty thousand people mm. there. And I remember at the end of the game, trying to get off the ground, it was almost impossible to get off the ground. <laughs> I was trying to bomb my way through all these you know, fans and to get into the dressing. I was exhausted trying to get into the dressing room. It, it was, and the dressing room was just full of people, and you could barely get to your locker. And, and it, it, look. Because Claremont had been so so long so far out of it, and uh, uh, it, it, and from Metal were red hot favourites to win that grand final, and, and how we beat them, I don't know. But yeah, but after that, there were some very good players in that game. That game who went on to have very good careers as well. So it was a joy, mate. I yeah. loved it.
2: How times have changed, though, from what you're describing, the crowds, the way that they can just run yeah. onto the field. It's all changed a bit, hasn't it?
1: Hey, um. Well, it has, and. And there's nothing wrong with that either, I think. You know, it was, it was uh, time to
2: change in a lot of ways and Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, when you're, you're, you're playing footy, you're playing cricket, you mentioned that you're trying to also, you know, really launch uh, your career as a journalist. What was it like when you are, uh, for all intents and purposes, a professional athlete, but at the same time also, you know, chasing after stories? Uh, and I, may, I imagine those worlds may have... Potentially collided at times. How did you manage that?
1: Well, with some difficulty, I, I, I would say. Um, you know, you know. I mean, I think the the West put me in the sporting department in the end, and uh, so that I, I was sort of part of the sports world, if you like. Mm. And uh, so, so I think they were tolerant of, in those days, they were tolerant of the fact that they had a, a reasonably good sportsman on their on their staff, and we better use him. And and uh, I, but I do remember. The the head head of the sporting department, sports editor, was a fellow called Ted Collingwood, a grand old journalist, a fantastic journalist. I've probably never come across anyone greater in in, in the sense of his journalistic skills, both as a writer and and as an editor and a sub-editor. And and I remember him calling me into his office, yes, Mr Collingwood, he said, this is after the 66 football season. He said, son, he said, you're never going to make it any better as a footballer. He said, uh, give it up. He said, I'll let you carry on with cricket. And I, it was the best bit of advice because I wasn't. I'd, I'd, had, I'd had, had my time at, at, at uh, football. So that, that sort of changed things a little bit. But, yeah. I mean, there was, there was one game, there was a number of games. Well, I mean, I had to work my week out, you know. And I, yeah. I, I had to, I had to um, a game where I, I, I had to work a night shift after... After the end, after stumps, I had to go and have a shower and and, and drive into the west and, yep. and work a night shift. And there were guys in the in the printing department who were sort of saying, "Look, we'll look after it, mate. You go home." Sort of thing. You've got to play tomorrow.
2: Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot but, to I mean, juggle, isn't it? it,
1: it was, well, it was a bit to juggle, and and you know I, I was fortunate that I had had the support of the, the west, and, and then. I, in '68, I went to live in England and, and work and play professional cricket in England and work and worked on a big newspaper in Manchester. And so things changed again, you know. And and then when I came back from that experience, I, I was a much better journalist and and I ended up becoming the sports editor of the Daily News and the now defunct Daily News, sad so mm. to say but, So I mean, and, and working for the Daily News was good because. You finished at about 2:30, and I could be—I could go down to the whacker and go to training without getting in the way of my work. Yep. Whereas when I was with the West, to get off to go to training, I had to beg, beg an early cut, what we used to call <laughs> an early cut, and whoever was looking the other way when I left to go to training. And uh, so yeah, it, it wasn't easy, but uh, you know we were, we were lucky that there were good days, and, and there were days where money wasn't the god; it was actually the, your mates and, and the and the joy of playing.
2: Yeah. Yep. I know too that uh, after you uh, finished up uh, playing, uh, you did take off to the UK again to seriously coach uh, at Kent. What was the, the lure and the attraction of doing that, Ian?
1: Oh, that was that was a number of many years later. Uh, look, mm. um, I, I was I knew I had to finish up at Channel 10. I'd yep. been the sports director at Channel 10 for 13 14 years. And I, uh, things were changing there and I knew I had to get out. And uh, I... I said I, I remember contacting my mate John Inverity and saying to him, you know, can you get could you get me any work in England? Like uh, he 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 was in the had been in the big private school system over there as a as an exchange teacher, and he had he'd also had a couple of months of coaching at Kent County Cricket Club, and I said to him, John, could you get me a job as a coach at a at a school somewhere? You know, like something different, because like, I knew I had to get out of ten. Yeah. And uh, anyhow, I took off. Ben took off on a. A big, about a two-month driving trip with some mates around Australia, and uh, anyway, I got to Port Hedland, and there was a stack of messages on my phone because we'd, we'd been way out back and you couldn't get a uh, couldn't get a uh, signal. And it was Johnny Very saying, "For God's sake, ring me, mate. I've got you a job." <laughs> and the job he'd got me was Kent County Cricket Club as the, as the director of cricket and the first team coach, and which was a parachute job for me because I mean I'd been out of cricket, I'd stopped broadcasting, and. I, I'd really been out of cricket uh, for a long time, and, yeah. and they they took me on on his word, and uh, you know I, I had a big relearning process to do, and that was two thousand
3: two and three. Yeah,
1: yeah, a, a great experience, and it was a, it was a fantastic. Uh, Opportunity to, to look at something completely differently.
2: Yeah, just another chapter in an extraordinary career. Uh, we're going to go back to your some of your media days as there's one moment in particular that still kind of stands alone as perhaps the most infamous moment uh, in Australian cricket. But we'll get to that right after we take a break, Ian. This is Inspiring Stories. Ian Brayshaw is our special guest. Back with more soon.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
2: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest uh, is Ian Sticks Brayshaw. Uh, Sticks, we're going to play a little bit of audio now. We're we're sort of jumping into your uh, media career, uh, particularly uh, your time in uh, commentary. Uh, This is... I think it's fair to say, still the most controversial. Maybe look, maybe perhaps the uh, you know the bit of sandpaper in the pocket might have trumped it since. But let's just say it's right up there as uh, as as one of the most uh, infamous, controversial moments uh, in Australian cricket history. Let's just take your mind back to that.
1: Long discussion. Well, it looks to me as if they're going to bow underarm off the last ball.
2: Marsh is saying no mate, but I'm sure he's going to bowl an underarm delivery on the last ball and bowl it along the ground and be sure that it has not been hit for six. The umpires have been told, the batsmen have been told, and this is possibly a little bit disappointing. Let's make sure it is an underarm, but I've got the feeling, it's a big ex-Victorian skipper, they're
3: going to bowl an underarm. Have not believed it? That's a disappointing finish. Disappointed Brian, affecting the crowd boom. And
2: it's all over. Yeah, it's still pretty awkward to listen to, isn't it? That was, uh, of course, the unmistakable yeah. voice of, uh, of Bill Laurie there, whose name's popped up a couple of times already uh, in our chat, Ian. But take us back to where you were when that incredible moment happened.
1: Well, I was sitting in the broadcast box for the ABC with a, a fellow from New Zealand and uh, he was d- describing and I was I was the expert commentator for yep. want of a better description. And uh, I just well, it wasn't all that long out of the game and I knew Greg pretty well and, and I knew a number of the players very well. And uh, I knew Greg very well. And, I, and Greg was feeling a deepish mid-off down underneath our broadcast position and when the ninth wicket fell, I just watched him sag to the ground and I knew that he was... Struggling physically because he wasn't a particularly robust guy. Greg had no fat on him or anything like that, and, yeah. uh, and I, I just saw him sag to the to the ground, and he head on his knees, and and then he slowly got to his feet as the batsman disappeared out and a and new one uh, uh, arrived on the arena, and he walked into his brother Trevor, who had bowled the previous delivery,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I thought, "Hello, what's going on here?" And then I, I saw them talking, and then I saw Greg go and speak to the umpire. And I, th- I and I said on air, "I think he's going to bowl underarm." Mm.
3: So and, you and, you and saw it coming.
1: And, I saw yeah. it coming, and uh, and I thought, "Well, this is a tragedy, an absolute tragedy." And in fact, it, it was. And then it, it, but it, sometimes good comes out of these things. And the good thing was that the law was changed. And it immediately became un, un, you're, able, you're unable to bowl underarm. And and the the other thing was that I think Greg and Trevor wear the uh, shame of it. And uh, Greg's told me a number of times eye to eye that he wished he had never never done it. And uh, it was a a slur on his great name. And he had a wonderful reputation as a player and as a a leader and a person. And and it tarnished his name a bit like, say, Andrew Gaff without my grandson. You know, Mm -hmm. like Andrew Gaff had this wonderful record as 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 a footballer, but as a person... And all of a sudden, he just had one little snap, like Greg had a snap, and and he, he'll, he'll never be forgotten now, Andrew. Gasson. No, neither will Greg neither will Trevor.
2: No, I mean it's uh, it's it's forty years uh, plus a few weeks since that uh, that famous underarm bowling incident happened. At the time, Ian, were you aware of the sheer enormity of the moment and the fact that we would be still talking about it forty odd years later?
1: I think we all did. Yeah. We all we all knew that it would never go away. Uh, I mean, there was a uh, the, the history. history I, I wrote a book called The ABC of History a while mm. ago, or many years ago, uh, ABC of Cricket, and, and, and I, in, in delving into the history of the game, I mean, cricket started when you couldn't bowl anything but underarm. Mm. You had to bowl underarm. And then a woman came along, and she was wearing a, 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 bustles, a, a skirt with bustles on it, and she's playing with her brother and started to bowl round arm to get, a, get the ball above or arm above the bustle sticking out of her skirt. And and then uh, her brother then went on and bowled round arm and tried to bowl over arm and he got shouted out of the game. So that the history is there that underarm was the only way you could do it. But we it wasn't the way to do it then. And, uh, you know, it, it was just a shame, a crying shame. I mean... You, you weren't. If you did lose the game, it would have had to have been one of the greatest shots of all time. Yep. Because the Melbourne Cricket Ground in those days, the ropes weren't in. parts the, the, those, mm. those, the, the, the fence was the, the boundary, and uh, you bowl a flat sort of delivery to get it in the air big enough for a number eleven batsman with the first ball that he faced. You know, I, I think it was a risk worth taking, and I and I know Greg w- wishes he had.
2: Yeah, yep. A lot of regret still being felt. Um, that moment aside, uh, Ian, you spent a lot of time uh, in sports media, They're predominantly with uh, Channel 10 uh, and the ABC. Fond memories from those adventures in your life?
1: Well, most of it. Well, I mean, they picked me out as soon as I stopped playing. I don't know why they picked me out as a, a possible commentator. Yep. Uh, because I hadn't played test cricket, for example, and, and most commentators have got a test cricket background. They picked me out to do it the next thing you know i'm 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 actually sent to england to broadcast the centenary test and, and a, a couple of international uh, one day games between australia and england leading up to the centenary test and i mean that that centenary test was a real event yeah a huge event and um, you know during that all any player who would played in an ashes test and was still alive was invited to attend and they had these massive tents out the back of the pavilions and and you you' sort of invited, was invited, we were invited to a major dinners and events where, you know, the, the absolute poi of, of, of British society and, and uh, entertainment and that were, were present. So I guess I was really, very lucky to be involved in that event fairly early in my broadcasting career. And, and then, you know, I, I mean, I really enjoyed cricket broadcasting for, enough, for probably five or six years. And, and uh, I didn't particularly enjoy football broadcasting, and 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 I had only just really joined the ABC in 1980. And uh, George Grunisic was the number one commentator by far, <laughs> and I was really struggling at the other end. Well, George, <laughs> George went away, and the grand there was a grand final between I might get the years wrong, it might have been 81, grand final between South from and Claremont, which began with a. Donnybrook, a comp- almost all-in fight. Uh, the, the, the very first bounce of the ball, right. Southland on Claremont, and I'm trying to. I mean, I'm trying to get my act together because I, uh, it's a grand final, and I'm I'm there broadcasting. I'm in half in tears when they're playing the national anthem, yeah. and I'm supposed to be leading the broadcast. And all of a sudden, the first bounce of the ball, there's a, there's a crash and a clash, and and they're all fighting. I mean. Broadcasting a game of football is hard enough, mate. I can tell you. But yeah. broadcasting a fight in a game of football <laughs> is, just, is just for someone who's never done it before. George is down at the Inter Dominion finals in New Zealand. I think he was calling the Inter Dominion <laughs> trotting finals, and, and I'm let, he would have lapped it up. he would oh, have, he loved, would have, it have it loved it. it. South Man and he would have dealt with it superbly. <laughs> I'd hate, I, I just hope they haven't kept the tape of that game. I'd hate to hear it, and I hate uh, anyone to hear it.
2: It sounds traumatic. Because there must have
1: been long periods of, of silence. and... <laughs> so, but I, look, I enjoyed most of it, and, and Channel Ten was, was another mm. opportunity to be part of something starting up. You know, we, we were we were the start up guys, and and uh, Seven and, and Nine were way way ahead of us, and we we didn't even get into the ratings picture for probably seven or eight years, and started then to start to put some stuff together. But and uh, look, look, I enjoyed most of it. I, I think I think radio was my my great joy, though yep. not not television.
2: Well, it's lovely to have you on the radio uh, here today, Ian. I, I have to ask, just before we take a, a break, your son James has also spent a lot of his time uh, behind the microphone. He's, he's very loud, isn't he, James? And yet you, you seem got a... slightly more reserved and softly spoken. Where does his, where does his booming <laughs> mouthy delivery come from? Ian, did he have to know. shout in the house or something? Where, where, where's I, his, I don't know. his style well, he, come from?
1: No, I don't think so. In fact, he was, he was quite <laughs> a quiet one in the house. James but was the he, quiet I think one. A, I, think, I think he's a very good broadcaster. He brings yeah. something different to, he does. to cricket and football. Yeah. But he, he does have a loud voice. and uh, He's a great, he's a great uh, devotee of the, of the committee method, and you'd never call committee a, a man who shouted. He had this beautiful, no, absolutely. controlled, dulcet tone.
2: Yeah. But he's, he's never short of, of something to say, is he, James? I, I'm no, wondering no. if he was like that sort of growing up, because I imagine obviously a very, very... Sporty household, uh, you know how competition can be uh, between siblings in a family. You know, is that where that um, that style sort of started to emerge?
1: Yeah, well, Mark was quite a dominant older brother, and, yeah. and I think Jamie had to make himself heard. So it he might have started there. I never thought of that. You, you <laughs> might be right, Tim. You might be
2: right. Very good. We need to take another break, Ian. But plenty more to get through right after we do that. This is Inspiring Stories. Ian Brayshaw is our special guest. Back with more soon. You're
0: listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
2: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, We are doing our best to cover the extraordinary achievements of uh, Ian James Brayshaw. Uh, Just before we get on to uh, more recent exploits, uh, Ian, um, and just sort of, uh, again, trying to pick through your your family tree here, how do you know which football team to go for when the weekend comes around? (laughs) I mean, you've got, uh, you know, James, who's obviously got ties to North Melbourne, Mark, Former Cleveland, yeah, exactly, played for North Melbourne. It's been a journey.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, to go right back, in the late 1950s, we had a coach called Austin Robertson, who was a great runner and a South Melbourne footballer, and we went for a trip to Melbourne, and we played a couple of, three of the colleges over there, but he got us into the dressing rooms at the MCG yep. for a game between Melbourne and Geelong. And I mean that, that Melbourne in the in the late 50s were absolutely just the ducks nuts, and so we're in there looking at Ron Barassi and Tassie Johnson and Bob Johnson and all all these heroes, you know. Like, yeah. And and uh, so I, we all became Melbourne supporters. So it started out with Melbourne, then Mark got it got drafted to North Melbourne, and uh, then Jamie had always been a fanatical North, uh, North Melbourne fan for what I don't know quite why, but and then. When Mark finished, he got a job as the inaugural finance director at the Dockers. Yep. So all of a sudden, half, Claremont, half of Claremont and Neesham and all that went to the... So all of a sudden, we're, we've, we've got a new team to follow, the Dockers. <laughs> uh, and then, then Mark, Mark gets it... After a couple of years, he goes across to get the marking manager of the form, formation of the uh, Port Power. <laughs> so all of a sudden, we've got to follow Port Power. Then he, then he gets a job at Richmond as the CEO at Richmond. Oh, another one and then all of a sudden you know, he and his brother are on the board at North Melbourne. Uh, Jamie was the chairman, and, and, yep. and so we're still back to North Melbourne now. And, and all of a sudden Angus gets drafted to Melbourne, so oh, we're back to Melbourne now. Andrew goes back, so we're back to the Dockers. So, and then, then all of a sudden Hamish gets drafted to the Eagles. So, so look, all we hope for is that the, when these boys play, that they, they don't get injured, that they each have a good game and may the better team win. That's our philosophy and it has to be.
2: And at least you haven't polluted the family tree with any associations with Collingwood. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, God, God forbid us if that happens. If Angus or Andrew get picked off by Collingwood, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we'll remember this moment. Then you'll support them in the same way you supported all the others. I'm sure, <laughs> like a good yeah. granddad would do. Um, let's talk about your writing, Ian. We haven't really touched on your uh, your incredible uh, prolific authorship over the years. Uh, most of your books have been uh, around sports that you've been involved with. Tell me about the joy of writing for you.
1: Well, it started with Dennis. And I, Dennis and I had an idea, Dennis Louis, that is, had an idea that we, that in, in the mid-70s, when he was, he was out with his in, injured back, that well, why don't we write a book? Yeah. And <laughs> anyway, it sort of started there. And a, and a guy from a publishing house in... Sydney showed a great deal of interest in it and he flew over and he took me into a room in a motel in the city and, and, and we spent 18 hours and 18 cups of coffee and, and a bit of pizza and, and he taught me how to actually take the material that, I, that Dennis and I had and make a book out of it. and mm. It was a really good learning curve. And, and so I, I sort of, that was a springboard. And that, was, that book was called Back to the Mark because Dennis was injured and he was going to get back to the mark. And then I did one with Rod and it sort of, and, and then later I had great success. Not because the book was great, but the name was great. When I wrote a book called Court Marshpole Lily, and that yep. sold heaps and heaps. Of, uh, that was a best, an Australian bestseller against all comers. Yeah. Just because of the name, and and so I've enjoyed most of it. Uh, I've I've done some a lot of quite a bit of ghost writing, but I've written some of my own. Perhaps the one I'm most proud of uh, I wrote four or five years ago was called The Miracle Match, and that was about that. One day final against uh, semi final against uh, Queensland at the Wacker with Tom Owen, and, yep. and Rod, and uh, the Greg Chappell And That was an amazing game. But I, but I end up writing a, a book about that some years, many years later. And, mm. and uh, so I've had, and, and I've done some uh, biography, written some biographies, a couple of biographies as well. So uh, look, I'm a journalist and I'm a writer in in the in the basic sense, and I've been able to apply that to something longer than a, a twenty paragraph story <laughs> in a newspaper.
2: Yeah, which must be a, a joy to sink your teeth into something like that. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the accomplishments that you reflect on uh, in life, Ian, you know, seeing your, your book finish sitting there on a bookshelf and, and people enjoying it, is it right up there with, you know, scoring a century or, or taking a bag of wickets?
1: Well, it's a different sort of satisfaction. Um, you know, they're all fun and, and satisfying and gratifying and sometimes you get a bit of money out of them, not often. So but I think it's I like it uh, writing a book to like laying a, ch- a chicken laying a huge egg you know <laughs> you just get rid of it and you you don't want to move on to doing something else and and uh, but but I mean there's great there is great joy in in creating something that other people, and, and the greatest joy of all is when people come and say geez, I really enjoyed reading yeah, that book
2: I can imagine yeah and, and hopefully they will be doing exactly that when your next book comes out and which I understand is a little bit of a departure style-wise for you.
1: Yes, it is. It's, a, it's a first my first episode or effort at writing some fiction. Yeah. And the, the, the theme of the story came to me when I was lying in a bed in, in a country town in France, believe it or not. Right. And I was asleep and half asleep, and when I got back to Australia, I sat down and wrote out the theme of that story, and, and over, over several years, many years now, actually, it's taken to the point of gestation. It's now ready to go. It's called Terms of Repayment. Yeah. It's a a love story, uh, which is a bit spicy at times. Tim, <laughs> well, but, hello. Uh, that's that's how that's how it came to me. I haven't created anything other than what came to me in a dream, and uh, wow, you know, like I I, have, I couldn't attract a publisher, so I'm self-publishing. Yeah. And uh, it'll be it'll be sort of launched uh, by the end of May or something like that, and. Uh, and hopefully someone will enjoy reading it. And I, I've enjoyed writing it and rewriting it and rewriting it.
2: I'm sure. <laughs> it's
1: been a, quite a journey.
2: And, and and how true is it to the original dream that gave birth to birth to Look, this I idea? Think it's absolutely. Yeah.
1: I, I, I the the original dream is the, is the, is the skeleton. Yeah. And I've just put the, I've just put the flesh on the skeleton, and it and it remains true to the dream. There's no, no nothing okay. has changed.
2: All right, That's, uh, except
1: the embellishment that you're putting the flesh on on a skeleton.
2: Absolutely intriguing.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyhow, Tim, it's been uh, a long journey, and uh, hopefully, there's a number, number more. No more books, but, but more, more steps down the path before it's too late.
2: Yeah. Um. In terms of the ideas for for more books, have you uh, have you have you got them flowing, or is it just very much get this no, one done I think and published? I, I
1: think, uh, my wife has said, after all the tortures of, of publishing this or getting this one organized, my wife has said, "If you ever do it again, I'll take a gun to you." <laughs> so so uh, uh, I think she's she's had enough of all the hours and hours that you, you sort of lock yourself away in a room and sit over yeah. the keyboard and, yeah, but she's she's been very helpful with it, fantastically oh, helpful.
2: With there it, you so. go. I hope she's in it somewhere, yeah. Man.
1: <laughs> uh, well, she, she she might be. Yes, exactly. Yes, <laughs> I won't tell you which theme
2: though. No, don't ruin it for us. <laughs> I look forward to. I'll keep an eye out for it. So terms of repayment out sometime. Yes, uh, in May. All right. May we'll hopefully it, yeah. right up there in the in the bestseller list uh, at the front uh, of the bookshop. I doubt it. Ian, thank you so much for <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate your time, and it's been fantastic hearing some of the the classic stories uh, in our sporting history.
1: Good on you, Tim. It's been a joy for me as well. Thank you. It's a long way down here and uh, you know, to be talking to people that may be listening in Perth and or whatever and or will be listening in Perth, it's, it's my pleasure.
2: It's always worth uh, the visit down to beautiful Albany. But, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us today, uh, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Bye, Ben. Thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We'll look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another inspiring story
0: inspiring stories for Bower and O'Day don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything
2: want to witness the world's biggest football game head to iCanWin.com.au predict Australia's score with a crystal ball and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi-finals all thanks to McDonald's Maccas together and loving it TNCs apply